You're listening to the podcast Circular Economy, a new narrative. The way we made soup was so different from these parties. Our principles were so different that for us it was pretty much impossible to compete on price level with these soups. To advance the debate and to also help these these entrepreneurs, we need to be talking about the challenges that are still embedded in our system. We hope to unlock maybe the imagination of people for getting to more sustainable and circular futures. Are you actively involved in the circular economy, either as a startup, scale-up, policymaker or a scientist? Or are you an investor looking for the most future-proof investment there is? Then you came to the right place. Welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, The New Narrative. My name is Annette van Soest. I'm your host. The circular economy is a popular topic amongst governments, scientists, entrepreneurs and investors. There's a lot of discourse and there are many initiatives to get it going and surpass the linear economy. With so many advocates, you'd expect that the transition from a linear to a circular economy would go easily. But... You guessed it. Unfortunately, it doesn't. In this three-part podcast series, I will discuss what needs to be done to get things really going. What and who do we need to accelerate the transition? Let me introduce you to my first guest, Principal Investigator Circular Economy at Utrecht University, Julian Kierga. Julian, welcome. Hi there. The Copernicus Institute of Sustainable Development does extensive research on the circular economy and for the white paper titled Disruptors, How Circular Startups Can Accelerate the Circular Economy Transition, you examined the business models of 147 circular startups in the Netherlands. Why do startups play such a crucial role in this transition? Um, the circular economy as a concept has been around for uh, at least 10 years. And um, when we first developed uh, this idea around working on circular startups uh, back in 2017, uh, we had initially looked uh, at a bunch of established corporations pushing the circular economy. Um, however, we felt that, uh, as you also indicated, not much was moving. So we started looking around for other actors where we felt uh, that these uh, maybe able to make more of a difference when it comes to transitioning towards a more circular economy. And um, upon looking around for uh, a bit of time, we found these startups that basically base the entire business model around circularity principles, reduce, reuse, recycle, and recover. And uh, we also figured that nobody had really uh, studied them before. So we said, hey, maybe these circular startups are our best bet when it comes to accelerating the transition towards a more circular economy. Um, so this podcast series will be followed by two webinars and a symposium. What's your objective with the whole project? What do you hope to achieve? We are an academic project. Uh, we're funded by the, by the Dutch Research Council, but the uh, core aim, uh, the core envisaged impact of this project really um, is a list of very, very concrete policy recommendations that uh, we give to policymakers and ideally we also convince policymakers in the Netherlands and beyond to implement these into the policymaking process. Thank you so much. Julian Kircher. Also part of the project is Thomas Bowens, researcher at the Copernicus Institute of Sustainable Development at Utrecht University. And Thomas, we are making three podcasts. Can you run us briefly through the setup? What are they about? Yeah, so we call this uh, podcast series a new narrative because we believe that 
to get to a circular world, we need a powerful narrative that is appealing to the imagination of, uh, of most people to, to get everyone on board. Uh, of course, circular startups have an important role to play also in building this, this narrative. What's wrong with the current narrative? Well, there is a lot of discussion around circular economy, as you mentioned as well. But what we are lacking is, is also putting this conversation into practice and uh, get things going. So um, we think that a narrative that, you know, embark everyone to actually do things circular uh, is important. Um, so in this podcast, we will talk about uh, the success factors of circular startups. We will talk about the barriers that uh, these startups uh, face in their efforts for uh, scaling up their activities. And we will also uh, give ideas about how to build such a narrative that is needed. What are you looking forward to most when you imagine yourself listening to this podcast series? Yeah, we hope to diffuse our knowledge beyond academic circles. We hope to unlock maybe the imagination of people for getting to more sustainable and circular futures. Thank you so much. Thomas Bowens, researcher at the Copernicus Institute of Sustainable Development. Let's talk about the status of the circular economy with my next guest. He's project manager at Circle Economy and co-author of the Circularity Gap Report, Kaspar von Daniels. Welcome, Kaspar. Hi, thanks. Let me start with a, a very simple question. What's the definition of the circularity gap? Um, it should be a simple question. Actually, it is not, um, unfortunately, because there's still a lot of complexity around how we can measure and define circularity in a, in a more quantitative way. Um, what we do with the circularity gap report and with the circularity gap metric is we measure the share of cycled materials out of the total inputs going into the global economy. And um, what do we mean with cycled materials? That is all those materials that are recycled or composted or um, cycled in any other way that can therefore be used as secondary resource input. And despite all the effort, only 8.6% of the global economy is circular, less than the 9.1% two years ago when you started. Um, we've gone from bad to worse. What are the, the main reasons for this negative trend? We have indeed gone to, from bad to worse. And the reason for that is um, that our efforts are not reaching far enough and the linear economy is still outpacing the, the circular economy, so to say, meaning we're still extracting resources faster than we increase our um, share of recycling and, and th th those activities and all those activities that ensure that we can cycle um, resources. And um, it, it is good to mention that there is an increase on that account as well. But Just uh, not fast enough. It's not fast enough, exactly. And at the same time, we're increasing consumption and therefore the extraction of materials at an even faster pace. So we need to speed up. Um, circularity Gap Report was first launched in 2018. What was the purpose? Um, the purpose was indeed to kind of anchor the debate around the circular economy in one number that allows us to track progress, assess a bit more where we are, and um, to also 
really jumpstart and kickstart that um, debate on metrics and how we can have a more realistic conversation about the topic of the circular economy because before we were mostly talking about all the opportunities that are out there, but how do you then make sure that you realize it and that you understand if you're making progress or not? So that was really our goal with that. And then beyond that, because what we always focus on is really also in contextualizing that um, metric uh, to also understand what are really the key trends around that metric, um, the constituent indicators uh, underlying it, and um, what are also possible levers for transitioning then towards a more circular model. Also joining us is Joost van Dun, Circular Economy Lead Sustainable Finance at ING Wholesale Banking. Joost, welcome. Thank you. Um, how does a Circular Economy Lead spend his workday? What do you do? <laughs> uh, that's a nice question. Well, my role is uh, actually twofold. On the one hand, um, I'm responsible for driving the topic of circular economy throughout our organization. And therefore, we run an uh, internal program, which we run together with colleagues from uh, Global Sustainability. And on the other hand, uh, I support our clients in uh, their transition towards more circular business models. And we provide them with uh, financial solutions to make this transition to more sustainable slash circular business models. Our economy is uh, becoming less circular or maybe more circular, but not fast enough, as Caspar uh, pointed out. Where does it go wrong? Why don't we do it fast enough? Looking purely at the demand side. Yeah, so from the demand side, we see that, that our population is increasing quite rapidly. Um, it's expected that we will be here with 9 billion people uh, in this planet in 2050, and especially also the middle class will grow faster. That also means that their consumption pattern uh, also changes, eh? because uh, if the middle classes grow in number of people, also our welfare increases, and therefore the consumption pattern changes. So, eh, for example... You can see that in the consumption of meat. And it's also, uh, we've also done research where we see that, uh, yeah, the, to, to, to say it simply, uh, the richer we get, uh, the more we tend to not reuse or uh, recycle. Uh, we are focusing on convenience. And that's also the second part. Um, we're typically getting used to more and more convenience. Uh, it's, it's very easy to shop behind your computer in the evening. You order something and... Um, yeah, the next day it's delivered at your home with an overall a very, very big package. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Most of the time. <laughs> yeah, so um, growing uh, number of people and uh, yeah, increasing demand for for convenience. Um, Kaspar Joost, since you both last reported on the circular economy in the beginning of this year, the world has changed dramatically. We are now living in the age of COVID. The virus defines our way of life, professionally and privately, and has a big impact, obviously, on the economy. Kaspar, how does COVID-19 shape the circular economy? It's it's a really good question, and um, it definitely plays a role in shaping it in, in the sense that it almost forces us to press press pause for a minute and um, therefore gives us also a big opportunity to move away from certain practices that we've um, committed to in the past and um, really rethink how we're, how we're um, operating our economies and our societies as a whole. Um, the crisis has really exposed a lot of weak points in, in our system, in our supply chains globally, noticing that all of a sudden we're very much dependent on where our products come from in um, countries far away. At the same time, we're also dependent on what people demand 
in, in other countries far away. Um, and that really disrupts our, our economic model. And that's what we see in the, in the big recession right now. Um, so it really amplifies the interconnectedness that we have. What we also see in terms of uh, the, the, the circular economy, and you could argue for, I think, is that we see some short-term environmental relief almost. We see carbon emissions have drastically decreased over the past months. And you even see these pictures of animals returning to places where, where they haven't been seen for, uh, wandering, for a while. Wandering the cities. Exactly. Um, clear waters in the canals, canals of Venice. Venice. Yeah. So um, th that, of course, gives a glimmer of hope. But then again, I think what we shouldn't so much um, do is in turning that into too much of a positive narr narrative because it shows also that this relief comes at a really, really high cost. And so in that sense, one of the key takeaways I think that we also have is that it really shows the urgency for us to, to act on these more long-term issues like climate change, like the circular economy and the resource issues related to it, um, to act on those right now already because we see if we have to do these radical cuts and, and changes to our, to our way of life, mm -hmm. that really comes at an immense cost that we can't even put into numbers and words just yet because But we can't even grasp it. Now. The transition also asks uh, investments. It, it will also cost money to uh, speed up the transition. So um, I'm wondering, since every country is struggling with an economic recovery, and uh, recovery plans, economic, will this boost the transition, the circular transition, or will it cause a setback? I think in some way it will still cause a setback probably because we will see that the priorities shift again towards making sure that, that you keep your um, population fed, that, everybody, that you create employment again and that you can um, reestablish some level of wealth. At the same time, Uh, what we also see is that there is a bit of a reshift re or a shift in uh, investment and that, that the priorities are shifting towards things that uh, can be a source of wealth for, for much more longer term. So um, an example that I know from my home country, Germany, is the idea of, again, putting out a kind of a discount on, on buying new cars um, and especially also cars that are fueled by internal combustion engines or powered by combustion engines, was actually um, agreed to not implement as opposed to, for example, the financial crisis in 2008. So um, we do see a bit of a shift there, I think. But overall, I think it's still a setback. Joost, what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, with, with regard to COVID-19, eh, you can explain it in two ways. On the one hand, eh, we see um, yeah, more increased use, for example, of... Uh, of plastics because uh, there's more demand. If we talk about demand for better protection of food, uh, for better protection of persons. so uh, Or uh, we are sitting here in a studio that is protected. We are protected by screens, plastic screens. Exactly. So uh, that on the one hand, but on the other hand, uh, that's also what Casper already mentioned, uh, we need to be aware that if we, uh, we now have the opportunity also to, to uh, uh, restore the economy, but not the old economy, the new economy. And um, I think that will also give an opportunity. And what we also see is that uh, the European Union is really driving also a, a green recovery. Um, the timing uh, seems right. Governments, businesses, civil society, they are ready. They are calling for a green response to this economic downturn. And the EU, especially Frans Timmermans, calls for billions and billions of euros of investments. I want to shift the attention towards the power of individual countries because according to the circularity gap report, we are all developing countries. 
Kaspar, what do you mean by that? What we did is we um, compared them along their performance on ecological footprint, so the, the amount of biocapacity they require to deliver on, on, on their current uh, economic activities. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the other hand, the Human Development Index that compiles a lot of different indicators around um, yeah, human development and, and, and the satisfaction of social needs, essentially. Um, can, you, can you name a few? So one of them would be access to clean, clean sanitation and water, education, um, a, a minimum income, these kind of things. And w- what we saw when we plotted those two against and tried to understand which countries are currently um, in, in a space where they have an ecological footprint that is within their share of the Earth's biocapacity and that managed to deliver on the societal needs beyond a minimum threshold of this human development index, we saw that actually currently no country manages to do that. So in that sense, in delivering on the promise of living in a socially just uh, society within the limits of the planet, no country can deliver on that. And that so is we why are all developing. Exactly. Um, but still, the driver of the change, as you state in the report, the initiative lies with nation states. Why is that? Um Yeah, that's that's something that we see, I think, to some extent, because it creates accountability. Um, accountability in the sense that um, the citizens of each na- nation state suddenly know, okay, this is about us, so we need to talk about nation states. Um, and then suddenly that accountability from citizens is also transferred to the national governments, which are, in the end, key entities in creating legislation both on the national level but then also uh, as actors in in supranational uh, entities like the UN. And um, in that sense, there's a lot of power in in, in those national agendas. Mm. And that's what we really wanted to highlight, whilst also um, making it clear that that um, transition agenda that each country needs to put forward actually depends on the local uh, reality that it is in. And our current debate on the circular economy is still also quite um, centered around the central European, very Western, Northern Hemisphere kind of context. Can you give us uh, maybe a couple of examples of countries that are doing really well unexpectedly? Because we are looking through that Western Yeah, Yeah, view. and it, it is indeed uh, countries w- where you wouldn't necessarily expect it. So if I remember correctly, some of the countries that were really close to meeting a minimum of, of human development and... Um, staying within the planetary boundaries where countries like, for example, Sri Lanka or Vietnam um, or also Costa Rica. Uh, All of these countries, I think, have uh, a a long history of also really cherishing um, their their environment, but also um, have not the the, the excessive, if you can can term it like that, that might be a bit uh, simply put, but very... In intense uh, levels of consumption that we have in our Western societies. And even though we have much better, better infrastructure and approaches to cycling our materials and, and, and um, ha- yeah, making sure that we keep our own, um, our own countries green and, and pretty and our ecosystems in, intact somewhat, uh, our own consumption is so high. And we, of course, also need to consider the impact that has abroad. So, um, That's maybe a good point to make also that, that that our classification of these countries, it always refers to the consumption of individual countries. And and let me ask you the question, Joost. Um, when you see that policymakers all over the world see the potential of the circular economy, despite all this growing interest, 
inclusion in the circular economy is limited. Why, why is that? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And that's also what, uh, what we were asking. Everybody sees uh, the necessity to, to transition to a circular economy, but why? Why does it, it take so long? <laughs> exactly, yeah. There are three main drivers which cause us uh, or which contribute to a slower acceptance uh, of the circular economy. One, I already touched upon it uh, earlier, was uh, the, the, the fact that linear products are, haven't priced in the externalities, making those products cheaper than they actually are. Should be. Yeah, mm -hmm. so, and that immediately goes to the, to the second uh, driver or the second cause is that we see that uh, what we call the transaction costs and the operational costs in the circular economy are quite high. Meaning, um, if you want to create circular propositions or circular products, uh, you need other parties to, to create such a product. Uh, you, you have to close the loop. You need to have your reverse logistics in place if you want to get your products back to you in order to uh, recycle components or remanufacture the whole product. Mm -hmm. You have to set up partnerships. You have to track uh, materials which you can use as an input material to produce your goods. And all these kinds of of course, if you add them up, uh, then you see that the circular products become yeah, a little bit more expensive than the, the, the traditional linear products yeah, because there are more parties involved to create such a circular product, uh, thus mere costs leading to higher prices. Mm. And the third one is that you need a, a, a market for secondary materials. Yeah? If you want to create circular products, you also need input materials from recycled content, for example. And you see, because... It's it's not scaling fast. That those second those markets for secondary goods are also still relatively small. So it, it's a little bit chicken and the egg. Eh? You, mm. you need a push to 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 scale and to to let those markets grow. And therefore, I think it's important eh, that there is also an additional push from the governments, uh, from the European Union, uh, to set this in motion and to to uh, to make uh, circular business more in favor over uh, mm. traditional business. So concluding also what Kasper uh, has stated about those countries and that they are critical facilitators and core enablers of, yeah. of this circular economy, we need joint action. That's also one of the points uh, in the GAP report. But when we look at the geopolitical situation, at this moment, trade war between the US and China, for example, the division even within the European Union on this topic. How positive are you, Kasper, about our ability to take that joint action? I'd say that being positive about it might be overstating it a bit, but uh, because, of course, I, I'm also aware, we are also aware of, of all these geopolitical dynamics that that don't necessarily foster that environment of, of collaboration and um, unity towards that, that shared goal of, um, of, of circular economy and uh, carbon neutrality. At the same time, I think what we need to differentiate a bit is um, global politics and global markets. And I think, um, yes, there's a big job to be done on global politics and we, we can't ignore that and that needs to happen. At the same time, I think... Um, while we are so globally divided in, in geopolitics, maybe we are more and more globalized in our markets. And well, not uh, the U.S. and China. <laughs> they have a lot of trade relations, of course. That's why those all those bans have such an impact also on those two economies. Um, so those trade relations might not be the best right now, but it's 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 still a lot of um, 
uh, very important markets that they can't each either of these parties can't just ignore. Um, and I think in that sense, our, our attention should be as much on um, governments and, and nations as it should also be on multinational co corporations and on them to think beyond individual legislative periods where there might be a bit more geopolitical conflict now than it might be in the future or may, may have been in the past. Um, and I think as they progress and individual governments also really take uh, the lead on, on advancing that and making sure that the markets move further, for example, with the EU Green Deal and the Circular Economy Action Plan, making sure that the EU market, being one of the biggest markets in the world, uh, moves towards circular economy, circular products, that has a huge impact on multinational country, uh, companies across the world and also making sure that that's possible. I would like to um, discuss with the, the, the both of you a few actions to see where we stand. Um, you can rate them 1 to 10, 10 being the highest score, obviously, and uh, consider it as a uh, like a quick uh, quiz round. So here we go. Uh, pricing of true costs. Where do we stand? Cost for 1 to 10. In terms of how far 1 being mm, not there not, at all? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd give it a 2. Joost? Uh, slightly higher, three or four. There, there are plans. Um, if you talk about taxing or bans, uh, then we, we make the first steps. But it is, it's very limited. So okay. I, I give it a four. A four. Um, very short round. Uh, spur innovation that lowers costs for the circular economy. For example, platform technology, modular product design, and new business models. Um, I'd give us a five. Well underway, but also a long way to go. Oh, I, I think I'm a bit more positive again. I would give it a six or perhaps even a seven. I think uh, there are a lot of initiatives taking place to develop new innovative solutions for uh, circular uh, business models. So yeah, I'm, I'm a bit more positive. Uh, the availability of risk capital for circular startups. Investors should develop financial solutions for circular startups that deal with more risks than linear startups do. Joost. A six. I think the capital is there, but it's the trick to allocate the right capital to the right initiative. Kaspar? Um, I'd say a five, just for tradition of being a bit less optimistic than yours. <laughs> um, I, I also think there's a lot of capital there and a lot of initiatives there out there. Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done in reshuffling and being more accurate about what risks we're actually facing and yeah, looking yeah. deeper into that and then also de-risking circular models. That's a very clear answer. Thank you. Um, thank you both. I will come back to you in a moment. But first, according to Utrecht University, startups can be the kickstarters for the acceleration, but competing with linear startups is quite challenging, especially when it comes to scaling up. One of such circular startups is Kromkommer, a Dutch wordplay on the words cucumber and crooked. And Chantal Engelen co-founded the company eight years ago when she realized that 30 to 50% of all fruits and vegetables were thrown away because of their appearance, although their taste was just as good as that of good-looking ones. To reduce food waste and change the system, Komkommer started selling soup made out of these discarded crooked vegetables. But last year she decided to stop, 
selling soup. Chantal, welcome uh, to the Circular Economy podcast, The New Narrative. Good to have you. you. Yes. What was the reason you quit the soup business? Well, there were there was actually two reasons for this. One reason is that we started to make soup not as a goal. Like we never wanted to be a soup company. Our goal was to make people aware of uh, the existence of wonky fruit and vegetables and that they were thrown away. And we wanted to tell this story and the soup was a very effective way to do this. Uh, with the results that years later, many people know about bonky fruit and vegetables. So the soup kind of um, reached this main impact on this topic. Uh, on the same time, we noticed that the competition in the market was getting harder and harder. And it was for us as a soup business that was doing things very different from all the competitors, uh, was getting um, way more harder. So we came to the point that we had to decide, do we really want to go into this soup business, which is very tough, or do we want to uh, stick to our mission and tell the story about wonky fruit and vegetables, but in different ways? And mm. that's what we decided on. So this isn't a sad story at all. You're still on a mission. But but let me ask you first, what was the toughest part of competing with these linear soup brands? Well, the, the hardest part is that the soup market is very generic. There's a few big brands uh, there's private labels from the supermarkets that are all focused on uh, high volumes, low prices, and low margins. And if you're um, a company like we were, the way we made, made soup was so different from these parties. Our principles were so different that for us, it was pretty much impossible to compete on price level with these soups, which mm. made our entry into supermarkets uh, quite challenging. So what have you decided to go into then? What is your... Well, you're still on the same mission, uh, but how do you fulfill it? Well, we're exactly, we're still in the, on the same mission. We still want to tell the story and uh, of wonky fruit and vegetables, and we decided to focus on kids for now, um, to, te to teach kids about wonky fruit and vegetables. And we do this with our NGO. So what we do is we have a kids book that we launched this year. It's a book about Meneer Tweebeen Pain, which is, can be translated as, as Mr. Carrot with Two Legs. Um, and we, we teach kids that way about wonky fruit and vegetables, but we also have toys, uh, wonky fruit and vegetable toys. And uh, this year we're going to launch an education uh, materials as well for school kids so that we can teach uh, kids already on a young age that wonky fruit and vegetables exist, but that they're great taste and that, they're, that you shouldn't be wasting them. And our reasoning behind this is if you teach kids this at a young age, uh, in the future, when they become consumers and have to buy fruit and vegetables, for them, it's maybe not an issue anymore. Chantal Engle, thank you very much. We will get into more detail in the next podcast. Then you will be my guest in the studio uh, together with other startups. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Kasper and Joost, you heard uh, Chantal's story. Um, entrepreneurs running a startup are almost considered rock stars sometimes you you hardly read or hear about hardships or failures um should the narrative change what do you think caspar i do think so actually i think um we should very much continue celebrating the efforts they make especially the, the those efforts of circular startups and and circular entrepreneurs but I think uh, our discourse is too heavily weighted on the big, bright, painted opportunity, which is definitely there. And we, we've learned that. But to advance the debate and to also help these, these entrepreneurs, we need to be talking about the challenges that are still embedded in our system, 
in our financial system, in our accounting systems, and even our legal contracting systems. Um, and we need to make sure that those topics receive attention and are actually solved and that we can find a way forward. And I think that's that's where really the next steps for the for the narrative, for the debate on the circular economy should lie. Mm-hmm. How can we really make it real and what where does it currently struggle? Thanks for joining me. Um, project manager at Circle Economy and co-author of the Circularity Gap Report, Kaspar von Danias. And Circular Economy Lead Sustainable Finance at ING Wholesale Banking, Joost van Dun. Thank you. That's it for this first episode. My name is Annette van Soest and I'll see you next time.